This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. The biggest change between this version and previous seasons of this podcast is that there are so many new ways to get involved with the Regenerative Skills community and fast track your learning. If you're ready to take the next step, I've created a wealth of resources at different subscription levels to fit both your time and financial budget. There are resource packets that accompany each episode, full unedited interviews, free book giveaways, invitations to live panel discussions with experts, and bi-monthly skill building calls to explore solutions, connect with support groups, and share your journey. For those of you who want more personalized guidance, I even have a couple of openings for one-on-one consulting. This weekly podcast is just the beginning. Find the subscription that's right for you through our Patreon link on the website at regenerativeskills.com. Welcome back, everybody. Now, today's session is an interview that I'd been looking forward to doing for a while. Since last year, in fact, when I found Shane Simonson's blog and began corresponding with him online. That correspondence turned into one of the most popular and talked about episodes from that season due to the ingenious way that Shane approaches farming in his land in northeastern Australia. Now, in that first interview, Shane gave an overview of the experiments in biological succession and food production on his homestead. His blog follows these experiments and speaks from a deep understanding of plants and how they live. Now, in my opinion, it's one of the most original approaches to large-scale food production that I've come across in a long time, and it asks the simple question, how might we still be able to produce enough food for ourselves and our communities if we no longer had access to all of the inputs and fossil fuels of our modern times. In this episode, we get to pick up where we left off last time and see how some of these plant breeding efforts have paid off. Shane speaks about how he's shifting phases at the homestead and focusing more on refinement of his system rather than broad experiments that increase the diversity. Now that he's seeing results from his consistent efforts over the last five years, he has a better idea of what thrives, what fails, and what's worth pursuing to greater fruition with his limited time as the primary caretaker of his land. Beyond that, we get to talk about a new book that he's writing, which is something of a post-post-apocalyptic future sci-fi novel based on biological advancement rather than technological, which normally defines that genre. Though he's still early in the manuscript, I love talking about this concept of a post-global collapse that envisions how our species might recover by returning to our reliance and relationships with the living world. This conversation meanders through a lot of topics, so I hope it's not too tricky to follow along. For plant nerds like Shane and I, I think it's going to be a real treat. So let's jump right in. All right, well, Shane, man, this has been a long time coming. We've been a little bit out of touch, but I have been following your blog and you have continued to push forward your experiments and your trials on your farm to to new heights, but now in a different direction. And we were talking before this, you were talking about how after all of this diversity of experimentation, you have started to feel a little bit of overwhelm and are starting on (laughs) a bit of a different direction to consolidate the things that are working and develop them further rather than kind of have this broad range that you're not really sure how to manage. Do you want to clarify a little bit about yes. some of the difficulties of, of that way of doing things before and the direction you're headed in now? 
Yes, ab absolutely. So the, the the way I explain it to people is that the first five years full time on the farm was all about differentiation. So everything I could get my hands on, I put it in the ground, ran it through my system and saw how it performed. And through that process, some um, dependable winners have emerged. And I've got enough of the really high level crops now that I can scale back the amount of um, uh, differentiation, trying to pick out the 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 new things that I didn't know I wanted until I tried them. Um, so that leaves me moving into the integration phase. So I'm just picking out the really good ones and trying to join them together into a more cohesive whole. Um, so one way of thinking about it is with um, broad shallow diversity. So that would be like a fruit tree orchard where you've got one of every species and it's kind of interesting, but you can't really do much breeding work with that. It's kind of like, uh, it's almost like a, a zoo for plants. And the other extreme would just be to have one species but have all the genetic diversity that you can possibly put together for a really focused breeding project. So I think the sweet swap spot is somewhere between those extremes of, of monoculture with really deep diversity or one of everything. So um, yeah, that's the stage that I'm in. And so for people who perhaps didn't listen to the original interview, can you give us a summary about what it is you're trying to achieve overall with the project that you have and, and where it is, kind of give some context. Yes, yep. Um, so my main focus is um, right in the name of my blog, Zero Input Agriculture. I'm developing systems that grow food without irrigation, imported fertility or mechanical management. So basically about as pre-industrial as you can get. So not commercially um, oriented. I, I would never expect someone to use one of these systems to, to turn a dollar because the market's too competitive. Um, but for people who want to grow food on a small scale for themselves with practically zero overheads, other than a little bit of time and the right genetics for your location, that's the person that I'm interested in um, helping them go on that journey. And so let's talk about your context and the challenges that you're working with there mm -hmm. in Australia. Yes. So I'm in subtropical Eastern Australia, um, fairly close to the coast with a little bit of altitude. And our climate, like most of Australia, is quite unpredictable. So at any time of the year, we can have droughts and that can swing around to floods. Um, we just recently had a very cold, wet summer, which was something we get once a decade, maybe. Um, and it looks like next year is going to be pretty wet as well. But in the past, um, as, as I was saying before, um, we've had over 40 degrees Celsius on the very first day of spring in the middle of a six month drought. So <laughs> take wow. your pick, basically. Um, and to find plants that can cope with all of that, not just one extreme or the other, um, takes a little bit of trial and error. But I think I've gotten most of that done. All right. So we talked about a lot of the experiments and the plants that you were trialing in the previous interview. And now you've kind of come into an acceptance of the ones that are worth developing further and, and the genetics of, of breeding them and mm. increasing, I assume, their productivity and their adaptability to your unique context. Um, yes. Which ones are you focusing on right now? Um, well, I recently did an article on my vegetable tier list, and it was interesting, the comments, because a lot of people have said in their very different location, it's, it's exactly upside down. Mm. So you have to find what works for you. But um, uh, on my A tier, for those of people uh, familiar with this, this is the second highest level. Um, Ping Tung eggplant has been wonderful. It's, a, it's the dominant variety in East Asia. So it produces long, thin fruit, really tender skin. The bushes get about a meter tall, and they last for like two or three years. So um, it, it's really great because eggplants are really hard to begin. Um, when you direct sow them, the conditions have to be pretty good. Um, but once they get mature, 
they'll go, they'll sell through anything. They, they can take anything. Um, and they've pretty much displaced capsicum and chili because we don't really eat it. Um, my, my family doesn't eat hot food, so I've kind of lost interest in it. Yeah, that makes sense. And mm. so with that being the first tier in the vegetable garden, and I assume you're trying to grow as much of a nutritionally complete diet, you've also uh, focused yeah. on on yeah, staple crops vegetables. as well? Yeah, vegetables are important, but staple crops are bigger. And that's one of the reasons I'm reducing the complexity of the vegetable garden, because I'd, I'd rather put in the minimal amount of effort and get as much as we need, uh, rather than, um, well, look at it this way. When you prepare a bed and you usually buy the seeds and you plant it and do all the weeding, no, no, no. You can do all of that for a new crop and then get nothing if it's the wrong genetics. And a lot of the last five years has been that process of doing all of the work and getting nothing except the information about which crop you should plant next year. So right. it's um it, it's a difficult mindset for for most amateur um, vegetable growers because um, they just want the food. So um, it, it takes a certain kind of lunatic to um, want to go through all of that suffering. But um, <laughs> that's me. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about moving forward now. So you've scaled mm. things back partly for your own health and what you're capable of doing. Yes. Yeah. I, I was getting close to burnout. I'm, I'm a pretty um, energetic kind of person, but I've gone through cycles in my life before where I reached the point of either getting close to losing interest in something or wearing my body out. And I think the mental burnout is far more dangerous, but I mean, I'm probably a bit more practiced at not wrecking my body. So um, yeah, that's the bigger danger for me. And it and takes a lot of mental motivation to do crop trials. Like I said, where you, you often end up empty handed. And what was it that really brought you to the limit? Like, is it just the tasks that you have to stay on top of, or is it all the complexity that you need to manage in these types of trials? This is going to make you laugh, but it's actually, it was actually my successes that were the final straw. And we'll, we'll talk about it later, but um, I had a really good maize crop this year because um, I'm still figuring out exactly how to do it well. Mm -hmm. And I had all this maize, um, my persimmon trees that I grew from seed six years ago, covered in fruit. And I just, didn't really want to find the mental energy to figure out how to prepare the corn. So I processed it. So it didn't all just rot in the field, but it, it was sitting around in buckets and like hanging up in braids. And I was just like looking at it thinking, mm, I think I'm just going to eat a bag of rice tonight. Like <laughs> that I don't have to think about. Whereas with the corn, I finally got to it. I've got good quality wood ash and I'm doing the nixtamalization. Is that the mm -hmm. correct pronunciation? Um, and I love it. Like I'm putting it in my soups and it, it tastes amazing. And it's not that hard once you figure out how to do it. But same thing, when you don't know what you're doing and you've got to get dinner ready in a few hours, are you going to take a chance on completely stuffing everything up and ending up empty-handed? And I think this is actually part of the dynamic that pre-industrial agriculturalists had. So imagine you're growing wheat in Southern Italy and some person brings corn along for the first time hundreds of years ago. And you're like, do I take a chance planting something new? If I stuff it up, will my family starve? So mm. agriculture can be very conservative once it finds something that seems to work. That makes sense. And that's actually kind of the direction you're headed in now. And so mm. for lower input, I mean, obviously the, the goal overall is zero input. What mm -hmm. have been the, well, I guess, what have been some of the unexpected learnings from this now that you're a good few years into it? Um, the really wonderful thing that I've learned recently um, when I kind of, you know, wasn't into it, needed to give myself some time off. I did the bare minimum here and there. Um, one thing that worked really well is in my vegetable garden, I never try and eliminate the weeds because particularly in our climate, which is a lot like um, Northern Florida, 
everything grows so fast that the idea of having these like picture perfect, you know, bare mulched, whatever kind of beds, it just doesn't work. Like it's, it's so difficult on anything but the tiniest scale. And if you do succeed in doing it, you usually end up wrecking the soil because all of those root exits just aren't there. Um, you can add all the compost that you like and it's not the same thing as diverse living plants. So what I did instead is I focused on the worst behaved weeds. So weeds that grow into shrubby things that once they get big, they're really hard to remove. Um, weeds that tend to flower without you noticing them. Um, the ones that have really obvious flowers are easier to knock the tops off if you don't want the population increasing. Um, and also the perennial ones that tend to run underground. So they, it's quite disruptive to try and get them out. Um, and at the other extreme, you've got the weeds that turn up after the crops have germinated and established. They just cover the ground a little bit at the best time of the year and they evaporate once conditions get difficult. So um, there's some weeds like that that I actually actively encourage. So what that means is there's a failure mode built into the system because I know at some point, for whatever reason, I'm not going to be able to do as much work as I, as I should. And when I do that, the system goes down a path that I don't mind as much. Um, so yeah, getting in and clearing the weeds out later won't be a big issue because they're nice species that play nice, that behave themselves. And that actually have some benefits for the soil in the meantime, you're keeping it covered, yes. you're keeping active yep. root life down there, root exits yeah, yeah. And, and nurturing it, the population unreal. microbes. Yeah, some people say, oh, if I want to rest the beds, I'll just get a whole lot of mulch and cover it all. And it's like, how often are you that organized with your crises and disasters <laughs> that you'll do it in advance? So normally like you injure yourself or something in the family happens or you just don't feel like it after doing it for five years um, full time and you need a break. And this approach works for me. I've, um, I've sculpted my weed population into something that is basically a self-sowing green manure crop is the way I look at it. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is ideal. Okay, so from the vegetable garden into your more staple crops, I remember you were trialing bunya nuts and mm -hmm. there were a couple other tubers that you had. Where are you at with those? And so, are they contributing yep. significantly to the staple crops of your diet? Well, the bunya nuts are a very long-term process. So I might get one generation out of those. Well, I'm hoping to get one generation of maturing and hybridizing and then sending them all over the world. So people who are interested in participating in breeding bunyas, getting get in touch with me. Um, so the trees are planted all over the place. I've probably planted three quarters of the space that I put aside for them. And they're just hiding in the weeds, establishing their root systems. And in a couple of years, I'll turn around and they'll be taller than me. Um, I've, I've seen that happen with so many other trees. I put them in and I'm like, oh, I should have looked after them better. Oh, they're not the right species. Moan, moan, moan. And then I kind of lose interest in them. And then I look again, I'm like, oh, they're doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> or they died and I completely forgot about them, which is, which is a nice surprise as well. <laughs> Either way, yeah, your work is, is, is reduced. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't have to pull them out. You just plant something over them when you get around to it. Um, but yeah, they're doing really well. I've got all the diversity that I wanted, um, including from um, up in the tropics. There's a remnant population up there that I managed to tap into. Some from a really frosty area um, up in the highlands, which I didn't realize they could take that much cold. Um, well, that'd be similar to maybe not too high altitude in Italy. Not hard freezes, but just severe frosts huh. for those who might be interested. Um, and I've also managed to locate what is likely um, first or second generation hybrids that someone planted um, in the 60s, I think, in an in a, uh, experimental forestry near me. And an enthusiast got in touch with me and shared some material with me. So that may have potentially saved me 40 years, 20 to 40 years of starting to mix the two gene pools together. 
And so where are you at with the breeding process? Is this something that you could easily share with someone and coach them through starting to develop their own genetics where they live? Or is this still kind of a complex process that you kind of need to do your studying and your research before you attempt? Um, At this stage, I'm still occasionally doing field trips when we have um, years where there's lots of um, nuts produced. Um, so for people who get in touch with me in advance, the, the cutoff date is basically New Year's Day because that's when the seeds are produced and they don't have a very long shelf life. You've got to get them planted quickly. Um, so some of that highly diverse remnant material could be available to people overseas, to, to serious growers. Hmm. All right. So why don't we start hmm. from the beginning of a genetics trial like this? Can you walk me through the process of how you first start with either seeds or some other propagation method? and mm-hmm. kind of set out the, the roadmap for how you're going to go about selecting for the traits that you desire. Yes, so the general phase is first, do a very small scale trial without a huge amount of diversity. So you might find that you plant the crop that you think you wanna grow and it just absolutely hates your conditions. Like without all sorts of, you know, um, basically like putting it on a drip in a hospital to keep it alive. It just doesn't like your conditions. So that's the first hurdle to pass through. I wouldn't plant, you know, a hundred varieties of something unless I'd already grown it at least semi-successfully once. Um, and ideally a couple of years, because, you know, years are variable. It might do well one year and then fail for the next five years. Um, Cause you just got lucky that first time. So be careful about over-investing in one particular um, variety too quickly. Um, once you're satisfied that it grows reasonably well um, and there's a reasonable amount of genetic diversity out there. Some crops, there's just, you know, one clone and that's kind of it. It's a bit of a dead end. Um, then I would start my phase of just sourcing seed from everywhere I can that is different sources, different names on the varieties um, and just grow it all in parallel. And the first time you do that, it's really eye-opening because you'll understand how variable seed quality is in commercial sources. Don't complain about it it's just the nature of the beast you're buying a living thing once it's in a packet sometimes it starts out perfect and who knows what happens and it dies Mm. so um i don't i don't think you can hold that against the people selling the seed particularly if it's not extremely expensive and most vegetable seed isn't particularly pricey um so from that first year um you'll usually see one variety that stands out relative to the others um if it flowers and not all vegetables will go to maturity under your conditions, particularly in the subtropics. That's a real problem with temperate varieties. Mm-hmm. Um, what I normally do is I just save the seed from the very best variety and allow it to cross-pollinate with everything else, even the stuff that barely got to produce a flower, just to get all that diversity in. Mm-hmm. Um, and the next year, that will give you a large amount of fresh seed from um, with genetics. It's, it's at least 50% the highest quality that you had available. Um, if possible, I like to plant that the pure seed of that best variety at the same time. Um, So you could potentially cross that to the really diverse population and you'll get 75% of the best genetics. And that's usually about the sweet spot for establishing a variety. But individual crops vary a lot. Um, Some need hand pollination, which is a much bigger commitment. Um, So like tomatoes, most varieties of them, most beans, you've got to get little tweezers and stuff around. Um, Whereas other things like uh, carrots and um, alliums, the insects will be all over those and any insect that lands on them will pollinate them really. Wow. Mm. And then just keep refining it from that point. And maybe once in a blue moon, add a little bit more diversity into the population. Um, For maize, that's really important to do because it tends to get inbred quite rapidly if you keep a small population. Yeah, that makes sense. And so 
what are the timelines that you're looking for here? Uh, does it mostly dependent on the reproductive cycle of the plant, how quickly you can expect to start to see the development of the genetics uh, you're selecting for? Yes, absolutely. Annuals are way easier than um, biennials and even worse perennials, um, particularly things that have vegetatively propagated like potatoes and sweet potatoes. There's often more barriers. They've, they've lost some of their um, uh, sexual reproduction capabilities over, over eons have just been chopped into. Um, so yeah, if, if for people starting out, I'd recommend pick an annual to begin. And um, normally what happens is within three to five years, depending on how lucky you are, you'll have your own um, Grex, uh, a highly mixed up population, or give it more time and you could maybe call it a land race. And um, it, it's amazing how much the quality of the crop can change. Um, so for example, one of the crops that's on my S tier, like the God tier, are my shallots. And when I first started growing them from commercially available seeds, I would have put them on garbage tier. Like they, they barely produced anything. Um, through mixing them all up and selecting out the big ones, only letting the really nice ones that I like go to seed, I now have ones that look more like leeks. They're um, almost an inch thick. They're perennial. You can cut them down and just take the top and they grow back year after year for a few years. Um, they seed prolifically. Um, I had so much seed this year that I sowed a row in a bed that was a bit weedy and so many weeds came up. I'm like, oh, do I really want to do the fiddly work to give them a little bit of a head start because they're quite small seedlings. And I said, why would I bother? I just hoed the whole lot in, weeds and all, weeds and crop and all, and sowed it again because I had like, you know, a hundred grams of seed sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> so I saved myself probably, you know, three or four hours of um, sitting on my bum doing fiddly weeding right up against these seedlings. Brilliant. And so I'm wondering with this ideal of reaching a zero input agriculture, how much mm -hmm. of your time is devoted to adapting the seeds to the difficulties of the situation you're already in? And mm -hmm. how much time is in developing or improving the situation so that it can support more life? Interesting. Um, I think that's a false dichotomy because really good crops that love the conditions that you have improve the soil as they grow. Sure. Um, other than a tiny little bit of mineral, like ash that gets taken out when you harvest the crop, if you don't return that biomass. And for most people like human manure and all that kind of stuff, it's a bit difficult to, to fit into their system. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so yeah, so in terms, yeah, and I probably spend 70, at least in the past, I spent about 70% of my energy managing the variety trials. So that's going to drop down to probably 20% in the future. Um, and only probably 10% of my energy, maybe a little bit more, was um, fertility management, like bringing in a little bit of goat manure um, from my flock that I, I run on my pastures, a little bit of ash and biochar. Um, now I've got a little bit more biomass. I sometimes I'm playing around with doing um, mulch, very coarse mulch. Um, and I kind of like it. it, it it's a bit of a, a double-edged sword because it does suppress the weeds, but it gets in the way when you try and hoe the weeds that do get through. So uh -huh. it, it, depending on exactly how you use it and exactly how the season proceeds, sometimes it helps and sometimes it doesn't. So, um, and it's a lot of work cutting it. And even if it's right next to the veggie garden, cutting it and hauling it around, I don't know. It, it's a bit more work than I really like doing. Sure. That's a lot of labor. <laughs> um, but I, it might be worth talking about my Inga Alley cropping system because yeah, that's something I didn't I get to talk about last, with the, last time. The Inga Foundation, who I've also been in touch with in the past. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, an, an amazing system. Um, do you, do you want to give a summary, or, or should I? Uh, sure. I'll, I'll start it off a little bit, and you can fill in the gaps. So the Inga mm -hmm. Foundation has been working primarily in Honduras and Mesoamerica with the Inga 
nitrogen fixing species of tree in order to transition these cultures that are used to doing slash and burn agriculture and integrating in perennial systems with this inga tree that restore the fertility of the land that was lost in that cycle so that they don't have to keep moving on to different parcels and they can continue to crop and improve the soil at the same time and many of the I guess uh, side products are wood, which prevents them from having to go very far and cut down forest and perennial species in other places. So it serves many purposes. Is that about how you understand it? That, yes, that's it, that's it. Um, it's also a phosphorus hyperaccumulator. Right. So the majority of the phosphorus that's in your soil is just locked up and plants have to work pretty hard to get to it. So you can pour you know, phosphorus fertilizer on the soil and within, I think a week, it's basically lost. It's just sitting locked up. Mm -hmm. um, so you need plants that are suited to your particular conditions that can tap into that and put it in motion for other plants. So basically um, it's another way that the ice cream bean trees, the Inga trees um, provide fertility for the crop that you grow in between them. Yeah. And so how have you been integrating that into your own projects? So um, I planted my Inga rose probably about five years ago. I and they're, they're now reaching functional maturity. Mm -hmm. um, it, a little bit slower here in the subtropics than the tropics, but they're still very hardy trees. And um, one of the big advantages of them is that they're very tolerant to very hard cutting back. So when you want to plant a crop, you, you go through and you, you turn them into stumps basically at a reasonable height. And that produces a, a vast amount of biomass, both the very coarse um, leaf litter that you can use as a very long lasting mulch. It doesn't disappear in our hot, wet climates. So you get a long weed suppressing effect. And as you said, the firewood is, it's not the best quality firewood. The energy density is not amazing, um, but it produces so much of it. And I actually have a theory, the more I think about going forward that um, access to firewood is probably going to be just as critical in the post-industrial future. And some places already are living in post-industrial worlds. Like they're already cooking on, on fires For now. Sure. Um, being able to provide that resource, I think is absolutely critical. Um, and yeah, the, the weed suppression, when you let the canopy grow out in the off season, um, the weeds basically just give up. You end up with a, a, a virtually weed-free um, bed if you get the spacing of the rows correct. And what spacing has worked for you? Um, so when I adapted the system to my conditions, I looked at what the Inga Society, uh, Inga Foundation recommended, and that was one of the rows that I did. And I made another row a little bit narrower and another row a little bit wider. And I also did a double wide row because I figured if their recommendation ends up being perfect, I could later plant down the middle of that double row and I'd have exactly what I need. Um, and what I found under my conditions is that the recommended spacing is great if you've got plenty of free time to cut the uh, inga as it regrows during the cropping season to keep the light getting to the crop. And I suspect in the developing world, that's less of an issue. There's more labor available. For me, just working on my own, uh, I wasn't into it. I enjoyed the springtime when it's quite dry here, preparing it all because it was really pleasant working out there. But once it got really hot and humid, I was like, oh, just let's see what happens. You know, like, <laughs> can I get away with cutting a corner here? And it's tricky. Um, it, it's funny because previously when we had dry seasons, um, I found the labor quite manageable because the trees didn't regrow that fast. And things, even though we had a really severe drought, crops grew quite well. Um, this year, with it being quite cool and wet, they grew so fast that um, I didn't really find the time to keep up with them. So mm -hmm. the double wide rows actually worked better for crops that are really sun dependent, like maize. Had a really good maize crop this year. Yeah, that makes sense. Have you worked in planting them on contour or in any sort of key line system? Because I know that the contour lines 
organization in Livingston in Guatemala has taken a lot of ideas and worked with the Inga Foundation and have worked it into key line design in Guatemala to help to manage the hydrology on their site as well. Yes, um, I have put them into parts of my orchards, like I've got a macadamia orchard that's interplanted with Inga, um, partially to provide a little bit of cover for the young trees and give them a boost when they're half mature, um, but mostly as a source of fodder for my goats and potentially biomass if I can be bothered dragging it around, which <laughs> may or may not happen. No, um, no. But the plan is ultimately I'll probably um, kill the Ingas in the macadamia orchard as the macadamias mature. Sure, that makes sense. Keep the competition manageable. Yes, and really? I do find that ingers, they're, they're really hard on other trees trying to grow under them because, again, they've got that really dense canopy that works uh -huh. great when you're trying to kill weeds. But if you're trying to act as a nurse tree, maybe not the best choice if you can't manage it intensively. Yeah, that sounds to be really in line with what I've learned about syntropic agriculture and that mm. selective pruning in order to simulate different stages in the succession of a perennial mm. food model in which certain ones, as they receive that signal from being pruned, put that into their roots, which gives the signal for the other ones to grow really fast and catch up. And yes. yeah. as you allow layers of light into the different strata of a forest, you're triggering the growth patterns of different perennial species. Absolutely. Um, there was one other interesting variation I did with the double wide rows. So when they're double wide, the, um, the trees don't produce enough of a canopy to get rid of all of the weeds. So that row was quite weedy when I started preparing it in the dry spring. So I used my hoe to clear away the big cobble peg bushes and other things that were in the way. And I concentrated that biomass on the side. So all of those weed seeds were the deepest under the canopy of the ice cream beans as they grew. So they had a really hard time getting established. But the rest of the soil that I'd exposed, which you know, I'm not supposed to do, but anyway, um, there was too much of a weed seed bank there to direct sow the maize. Like there'd be a lawn of weeds that would grow around them that I'd have mm -hmm. to hoe again. So, and I had all of this wood left over from pruning the ice cream beans back. And I'm like, what can I do with that? And, you know, I make biochar, I make windrows, like long narrow rows of branches and I light them at one end and then quench them as the fire goes along. Um, and I thought about that, but it's really overkill. Like the amount of heat that you apply to the surface works beautifully. Like it kills every weed seed you can imagine, um, but it's like 10 times more than you actually need. And I didn't have quite enough wood to do the entire system um, by my estimate. So I came up with an idea of what I call uh, a fire sled or a fire chariot, you know, chariots of fire. <laughs> so I got a piece of metal and I folded it into a little low box and put a, um, uh, a couple of chains on it. And I started the fire in the box. So every few minutes I would move it a little bit further along so that it could just heat treat the very top layer of the soil uh -huh. and kill off the weed seeds to give me just a little bit of an advantage in getting my crops established. And this is creating biochar in the process at the same time? Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't produce biochar because um, okay. you're stretching that wood. You, you're getting all the heat out of it that you can. And it was a very simple idea. And in practice, it took a long time. Um, <laughs> you, ha you, can't, you can't just move it like a, a vacuum cleaner. You've got to give it time to sit in one location. Um, and it took a while to kind of get a sense of you know, doing a trial and seeing the, any signs of germination a, a few weeks later. Um, did I get it right? And... Yeah, it was very low impact work. Like I was, you know, reading podcasts, listening to podcasts and, you know, just wandering around and reading novels while I did it. Um, so in that way, it was better than hoeing because hoeing all day does take a toll on the body, even if you do it very well. Um, but I, yeah, in, th in terms of the time produced, um, 
I have a better idea next year. I'm going to do a windrow down the middle to make biochar. Um, and I'm going to use that space for germinating the most weed sensitive seeds. So small seeds like grain amaranth and chia, they need a really clean seed bed to get started. And they also really love um, the mineral boost that they get from the biochar. Um, whereas on the edges, I should have enough mulch from the ice cream beans to direct so large seeds like corn, like maize, and cucurbits like pumpkins, because you only need to plant one of them every, you know, 50 centimeters or so. Sure. And this is what I really love about all the findings from your from your trials, because even if the plants themselves and the conditions are not analogous to what I might be using or someone else, the honesty in the labor and the return <laughs> on expectations is always valuable. And it always gives me insights into like, oh, yeah, this is a variable I hadn't thought about. Or sure, the labor part is often not calculated in this. And getting that whole and picture is always useful. Yeah. And you can't just measure the labor in hours. Mm -hmm. because different kinds of labor um, tax the mind or the body in different ways. Um, they're more demanding about how precise you are with the timing than others. Um, it, it's like if someone sends you an email and you have to reply immediately versus whenever you feel like it, it's a, it's a completely different experience. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, there, there's all these other aspects and you can only really uh, optimize those systems based on feeling. You, you can't just measure the kilograms that are produced or the dollars that you make and optimize for that because there's all these other factors that impact you in ways that are hard to measure. Sure, and forms of capital that we need to learn to value more. It's not mm. just the return necessarily in the product that comes out of it, but the entire experience and having produced it as well. Mm. Mm. You can look at oh, the value um that was added to the the microclimate that you're helping to create or the soil conditions as well. Yes, 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 absolutely. Um, there is an interesting story behind the maize that I grow. Um, like everything, I'm, I'm not just growing whatever I find in a, um, in a, in a mainstream catalog. Would you like to hear it? Yeah, of course. So um, as I mentioned in the previous um, podcast, uh, getting genetic material of major commercial crops into Australia is difficult because there's, um, we have the advantage of um, being a very isolated country and a lot of the crops we grow don't suffer from the pests and diseases that really bother people overseas. So I fully understand that. Um, but I've trialed just about every major staple grain under the sun and they just aren't suitable for my conditions. But I did know that in Central America, um, which has quite similar climates to us, the major lowland staple is white maize that, you know, they make tortillas and mm -hmm. um, all those kind of things out of. And we have none of that genetics in Australia. Like it's Makes almost sense. impossible to find. So when I first moved up here and I started doing variety trials, I was searching on the internet, which is so easy for everyone to do today. And I discovered that our government ran a seed bank um, out further inland that focused on um, tropical staple crops. So I'm like, oh, contact form, send them an email. Um, I'm part of a community um, crop breeding project. Is it possible for us to access? I mean, taxpayer funds, right? Mm -hmm. And I wasn't expecting them to reply at all, um, but they got back to me and said, yeah, of course you can. And I'm like, well, what can I have? And they sent me a spreadsheet, which had oh, 50 to 100,000 entries. Oh my goodness. And said, take whatever you want. <laughs> so the, the descriptions- the shop. Uh, Pretty much, pretty much. So the descriptions weren't very detailed. So I, anything that was described as white maize, I just basically lock of the draw. I, I just, I think sure. I've got about 20, 20 odd varieties. And the first year I planted um, two or three seeds of each variety out because they're only small packets. And I knew from past experience that I couldn't rely on it being available in the future. I've had so many times where I bought something, 
was amazed by it, lost the seed, and then like, I'll just buy it again. And even if it's listed, sometimes it's not the same strain. Uh-huh. It'll have the same name, but it, it's not the same thing. So you, you can pull your hair out trying to find things that you know, like, was I dreaming that it was that good? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I planted all the varieties out. I labeled them, kept track of them. They grew really nicely. We had a good season that year and they started to cob up and I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. And right beside where I was growing them, there's this giant gum tree. It's, it's one of the original um, uh, remnant trees. It's full of knots. So they never cut it down in the timber industry. It's mm-hmm. just left and it's full of parrots, like dozen species all screaming around in great flocks coming and going from all over the continent and as soon as they figured out there was corn growing down there within an afternoon they destroyed it wow except there were a few varieties i think there were four varieties that they kind of started biting at and then they're just like oh this is too much hard work and they went to the the next variety over (laughs) and i kept a record of what those good varieties were that could stand up to the parrots and the next year I only planted those varieties because corn is really it's a sex maniac it loves outcrossing and I didn't want to have all of that genetics that the parrots destroy instantly anywhere in my mix so um, that's the foundation of my population and true to my prediction um, within a few years the um, government seed bank had been sold off to commercial seed companies of course (laughs) <laughs> and that's, they probably knew the people running it. They, they probably, you know, people talk in, in government. And that's probably one of the reasons they just were like, you can take whatever you want. But <laughs> that was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And now I have a variety that it performs beautifully. And I only save seed off the cobs that don't even get a little nibble at the top. Fantastic. Wow. That is a story. What a shame mm. to have lost that resource. And, you know, plant genetics is something that is constantly going down. So the efforts to yes. preserve them and continue to develop the genetics in different areas and under different conditions is so important. Well, on that note, I might put a call out if any of your readers um, know where you can get quinoa genetics. So another one that's hard for us to access in Australia, not for quarantine issues, at least it's a small enough crop that they allow it in um, with just basic checks. Um, so quinoa grows everywhere from Peru down to Chile. And it's very sensitive to day length changes. So it uses the changing day length to trigger its flowering. Mm-hmm. And in Australia, we only really have access to the varieties that grow way down south. So when I try and grow them, no matter when I sow them, they get to like three inches tall, flower themselves to death. And then I'm kind of like, I get three seeds when I planted one. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are varieties in Peru, which is on exactly the same latitude as us. Um, that I would love to get some material of. I've heard there's some varieties that grow six feet tall, which in our weedy environment oh, would just be amazing. <laughs> yeah, that would do <laughs> such good for for stifling that pressure. Um, yes, what's that yeah, I like only having to weed is... things when they're little. <laughs> sure, of course. What's that latitude that people in Peru might be able to... Oh, I think we're at about 27 degrees south from memory. Okay. Um, should I put that out in Spanish for the Peruvian listeners? <laughs> oh, if you like, if you like, it might end up coming from somewhere else because I know Peru has become uh, understandably protective of their crop genetic resources. Sure. sure. So, I, but then again, I'm, I'm not a, a giant, you know, industrial company that's trying to, you know, take whatever I can, what, whatever I manage to breed here, I'm going to sell, uh, sell very cheaply or distribute freely to anyone who's interested. Um, and that counts for the maize as well. I, as far as I know, I'm the only person growing this variety of maize in Australia. If I kick the bucket or lose it, it's gone. So if there are any growers in Australia who can understand the dynamics of managing maize properly, not just growing one or two and saying, isn't that interesting? You have to grow like at least a hundred every year so that they don't deteriorate genetically. Right. right. Mm. Or you just have to figure out how to live forever. (laughs) (laughs) 
I can't I'll figure out which on one that. you're closer to. Um. <laughs> uh, no, I think a bunya cone is probably going to cave my skull in at some point when I'm when I'm a geriatric and I'm, I can't get away quick enough. Oh man, those things are vicious. I've been to one of those <laughs> trees. I think we talked about it in the last interview where I was sitting underneath mm. one of these trees in Guatemala and I could see all these massive big nuts around me. I'm like, maybe this isn't the place to sit because they're super spiky <laughs> too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that that just makes me love them more. Yeah, of course. <laughs> All right. So before we start going into talking about the book that you're working on right now, I want to wrap this up by the fact that you're also breeding animals in this space. And it's not just, oh yes, it's not just plants. And how does that breeding program run parallel to your experiments with the plants? So it runs along very similar principles, um, finding all the genetic diversity that you can, throwing it all together, and then trying to come up with something that doesn't need a lot of inputs. So um, I, I'm probably going to um, brew some egos here, but a lot of people who say, I produce my own eggs, what they actually do is they buy industrial grain and they convert it into eggs with their chickens. Yeah. So it, and do that if you enjoy it. It's a great starter animal for getting experience in handling livestock in small spaces, but be conscious of what you're actually doing. And organic isn't that much better in terms of the fossil fuels that are used. I mean, just driving it around the countryside yeah. is something that is, is quite extraordinary, you know, in a deep historical perspective. Anyway, so I'm not particularly keen in chickens, um, on chickens. I think they're very, they're probably one of the most inbred animals, like, like the tomatoes. They get every disease under the sun. They look really amazing. Um, they can produce really well if you pump them full of just the right kind of food and protect them. But um, for me, they've, they're kind of the quintessential over-industrialized animal. Um, but geese, by comparison, nobody's messed with them. Um, who'd, who'd want to? They're so scary, but I love them. Um, just like the bunyas, I like things with teeth. Um, so what I've done is um, a lot of people may not realize that there's actually two very different kinds of geese. There are the European geese and the Asian geese, the Chinese geese they're normally called. And they were actually domesticated independently from separate wild populations you know, thousands of years ago. So um, for the same reasons, getting goose diversity in Australia is really difficult, like importing eggs thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars and it's probably not going to give you anything because it's a really difficult process to go through so our genetics is quite limited but we do have chinese geese and we do have pretty good european geese so what i've done is mixed the two together you often see that happen by accident for for fanciers who accidentally let the crop the, the varieties get together and they're like oh no one wants those things they don't know what to do with them they look strange they're the ones that i want <laughs> so what i want to do is develop a variety that needs minimal supplementary feeding and the Emdens are already pretty good at that. They're the really big white geese. Um, the Chinese, I'm doing the second generation um, hybrid cross this spring, and I'm going to keep the females from that cross and cross them back to just the very biggest, meanest um, Emden ganders that I can find to try and breed the biggest goose that I can. And the aim is to breed an orchard goose because there's lots of people with orchards that get tired of mowing them and they want uh -huh. to you know, chase the neighbors away maybe. Um, keep the door-to-door um, -door salesman out of the out of the house. <laughs> They'll do and, that. Um, yeah, and an animal. Ideally, what I'm aiming for is one that you only need to feed around breeding season if you want more eggs. Right. Okay. And that grows really rapidly on pasture. And so within that breeding season, there's just a couple of months, presumably, and where they're really producing eggs. Yes. Yeah. Um, Chinese geese, if you fill them full of food, they'll produce eggs for a longer season. Um, some of the genetic genetics I've seen overseas um, lays for like nine months a year if you keep the food up to them. Oh, wow. um, but I don't want to have to produce that much food just to put it into a goose. I would rather have the, the hardier European types, but just with a bit of extra diversity thrown in there to make them something a bit more unique. 
Yeah, and I think people think that, you know, you always have to eat eggs fresh, but they're surprisingly easy to preserve for a long time if you have a glut in a certain season and need them to last throughout the year, just with mm. water and lime solution. Have you ever tried it that way? Uh, in our very warm climate, it's a little bit more risky when you preserve eggs. Okay. And seriously, I prefer the meat with the geese. Um, I've eaten uh, the odd egg yeah. and it's okay, but they're a kind of animal if you don't need to feed them once they've hatched pretty much. Um, they're like a living store on the foot. Sure. And most years, half of them are boys. And if you leave them all, they will fight and cause chaos. You've got to eat most of the boys. Um, as the girls get to about three to five years, that's often a time to cycle them out of the flock as well. Mm-hmm. And um, it means that whenever you feel like taking the you know, hour it takes to process a goose, you've got meat waiting. You don't have to refrigerate it. You don't have to dry it. You don't have to salt it. It's just there. And it's doing a job for you. It's providing a useful impact in your orchard. Indeed. And I would imagine that it doesn't take that much longer to process a goose than a chicken, but you get a lot more meat for it. Uh, yes, absolutely. And it's, yeah. it, it tastes more like beef. So they're herbivores. Um, I always make the comparison between um, cows being herbivores, which have a fairly mild tasting meat, and pigs being omnivores that have much more strong notes. Hmm. Same kind of comparison between geese, which are herbivores, and ducks, which are omnivores. Most people have eaten duck, so you can kind of make the uh, make the comparison and imagine what goose tastes like. Yes, yeah, for it's sure. The, it's the um, the poultry equivalent of beef. Well, and it was also a much more common meat staple in the diet very recently it's only been yes yeah the last chicken used to be really decades. rare yeah chicken used to be really rare it'd only be like once a year you'd maybe eat a, a rooster or two right because otherwise they're egg producers for the most part yes that's where they were strong in genetically uh, okay Absolutely. and then with the goats so now this is something that we have in common because we raised goats when i lived in guatemala and i'm aware of some of the challenges of such an intelligent animal <laughs> and and just how much damage that they can do if they're not kind of monitored and if they're not in the right environment, but that they also mm. have some pretty high mineral needs. And I don't know, like how attentive are you to the needs of the flock or is this also uh, a trial in which you're trying to reduce the inputs and the maintenance as much as possible? Uh, absolutely. So first thing is I have sun and goats, the, the big white, um, they're kind of like the Holsteins of goats. Yeah. And I was lucky that we have really good genetics of salmons in Australia. Like we have better, they originally came from Switzerland and it's kind of like we sell camels to the Saudis now. Um, we've got better salmon goats than anywhere in, in where they originally come from in Europe. Wow. Um, so I was very lucky with that. Originally I'm like, oh, I'm going to play around and mix different breeds in. And I love the salmon so much from day one that it's one area that I've decided I can save that energy and just be happy with it as, as it is. Um, that said, my very first animals were um, show stock that were fed on concentrates and kept in stalls. So I had a very difficult process of slowly weaning them off all of those very expensive um, feed sure. inputs. Um, the first generation had a hard time, but the second generation that um, started with virtually no inputs have done a million times better. A lot of the problems I had in the first flock, I, I just haven't seen them again. So that's one thing. Um, and I've since brought in another buck from one of the last production lines of um, salmon goats in Australia, like a commercial mm. dairy that's nearby. And um, in terms of managing parasites and minerals, um, the main thing is to have lots of weeds and lots of trees that you can cut for them. And um, I, with the cows, when I had before, I was doing very intensive rotation, like weekly moves with electric fences going everywhere. That worked because the cows tend to keep the pasture quite low and running the lines out without them shorting on the wet grass is relatively easy. That doesn't work for the goats. 
Um, I, I couldn't manage that amount of fencing with um, pastures that are often over my head. <laughs> right. Um, so instead I've got larger paddocks and I do a slower rotation. But the advantage is the goats are really good at finding what they need. They don't just sit in one corner like the cows lazy, though the salmons are a little bit lazy. Um, though the advantage of them being really lazy is I've managed to control them with a single electric line. Just one bit of electric tape is all it takes at the right height. Oh, nice. And I can leave it off for, I think the record is three months and they didn't go near it. <laughs> so the salmons are a particularly gentle and not very naughty breed. So I think if I had brought in other genetics, I'd be fighting with them escaping more often. Oh, that is fortunate. Mm. And yeah, having paddocks that are so big that they never really run out of something to find is the other big thing. Um, and they do still get a mineral lick supplement, but I'm hoping um, in time as more trees end up in those um, places for them and I have more fodder to cut for them, um, I could scale that back. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm. The, especially, yeah, it's taking away the motivation for them to try and escape if they're happy where they are and they don't really need anything that they can see around them they Absolutely. tend not to push the boundaries as much. That's, that's really key. I, I think a big part of my success too, is I've planted um, living hedges on the outside of the single lines, the single electric lines. So if you've just got a single electric line, a goat can jump over it or go under it really quickly if they learn how to do that. And then they're on the other side. And if you only have a hedge, they'll gradually eat their way through it. If you don't do the rotation perfectly, or if you're not out there with a stick kind of watching them. Um, if you put the two together, though, they synergize beautifully because the hedge slows them down enough that they touch the line and the line stops them from sticking their head into the hedge and eating it too much. Oh, that makes lots of sense. Brilliant. Mm. Mm. I love it when those things kind of combine and work together. I haven't yes. heard a lot of those trials yet. Um, okay, so let's switch gears now and focus on this concept for the new book that you have. And it's, it's just in the early stages, I remember you telling me, but the concept yes, is something that I'm, I'm really drawn to. Can you give us an overview of what you're working on? Okay, so first thing probably is to outline the genre, which I think is hard to classify. So yeah, this isn't a Mills and Boone bestseller, but I would like to reach some people. Um, I've, I've been enjoying writing it, so hopefully they enjoy reading it. So it is... I guess the closest thing I could say is speculative science fiction, but it's based on hard biology. So it's a hard sci-fi book based more on biology than, you know, the usual rockets and robots and, you know, jetting off into the universe to, to argue with people with different shaped ears. <laughs> and it's set in about 5,000 years from now, which is enough time for a bit of biology to have happened. Um, I th the, what I love to imagine is if you could go back just before the agricultural revolution that happened in the Middle East and explain to a hunter-gatherer that those weedy grasses that, you know, occasionally get a, a little bit of a feed out of, um, within a few thousand years, there's going to be something called Babylon and there's going to be this many people all piled on top of each other. They're going to be writing. They're going to be doing all these crazy things. And it would seem like science fiction to them. Like it would seem so fantastical. Of course. And my, my interest... Uh, is exploring could that kind of thing happen again based on the knowledge of biology that we have today okay so outline what this concept looks like from the perspective of the people living it uh, they don't have a memory of the collapse of this civilization but i would imagine in five thousand years there are still a ton of remnants of our trash and our civilization if nothing Actually, else. if you, if you, uh, and I did research this, if you look into it by 5,000 years, there'll be almost nothing left. Really? So from the people who are left, we're almost just kind of legendary. 
like there's stories that are shared because they sound interesting, but no one completely believes them. Okay, so at this point, the society as we know it now is basically part of the mythology of this new culture. Mm -hmm. And they talk about it, but they don't have any real reference to it and they don't know how it works. Yes, but some groups of people have maintained little pockets of some technology that is feasible, that it could be managed on a lower scale of complexity. So um, I basically start the story with those people. So it's, it looks a bit, a little bit more like just a dystopian kind of world to begin. But then over time, you get to understand that other parts of the world have traveled in a very different direction um, to almost be unrecognizable. Okay, so basically, the modern society that we know now has collapsed. And mm -hmm different parts of the world due to their increased isolation from the lack of the communications technology that we enjoy now have mm -hmm. evolved quite separately. And yes. what are some of the range of developments that you're entertaining in this story? Oh, um, interesting detail question. So um, the majority of the story is focused on a small group of people who've managed to maintain um, simple battery technology, um, simple light bulbs, and um, you know, really simple electricity. Um, though that is supported by a, uh, a somewhat artificial structure that makes that possible. Um, yeah, um, other parts of the world have gone way back to being medieval and, and, and have lost all of that. And so is this looked at from a perspective of, oh, what a shame for all that they've lost, or a curiosity for all the things that have developed almost in parallel without having access to artificially cheap energy as we we know it now yes yep um absolutely it's a it's a hopeful open-ended curious kind of exploration so that's why it doesn't really fit into post-apocalyptic either right. um, those novels are no, normally a, you know completely focused on suffering and deprivation and loss and yeah i that trope has been done so successfully that i didn't want to write it again and same with the idea of you know flying off to the stars um excuse me john michael greer talks about this in particular that our culture has this false dichotomy of either we're going to have this Star Trek future or we're going back to the cave and there's nothing in between and I think he's right in saying that that's both of those are cop-outs and that there's interesting and difficult work for us to do every single day between now and whatever future you want to imagine um, that will lead us in all sorts of unexpected directions and getting back to what I'm doing now the only resources that we have that are truly renewable are biological resources because you can reproduce them indefinitely and change them almost indefinitely and human skills and knowledge our culture um, they're like a, a kind of parallel um, genomic system for human societies yeah I would agree and it's one of the reasons why I really wanted to explore this with you is because I've often thought about what the possible scenarios after collapse are and I've done some reading about this and the reassuring thing for me is that societies have collapsed many times in the past and are currently in different stages of collapse around the world. And mm. we don't have to necessarily guess about what would happen. We have a lot of references to draw from and mm. examples of where in these different stages of collapse, it can either be arrested or be accelerated. And mm. there's a great book by Dmitry Orlov called The Five Stages of Collapse, which I'm specifically referencing yes. here. And I love his work. He's really he good at grabbing the cultural um, digestive system for dealing with collapse. Yes. And it really makes you think, okay, not only have societies collapsed in the past, but they have also recovered for various mm. different reasons. And mm. collapse doesn't necessarily mean the end. And so mm. envisioning or 
I guess, looking into the details of what a recovery might mean with different resources in different parts of the world, I would imagine was part of the inspiration for exploring this concept more in book form, no? Absolutely. Um, and there's a really interesting thought experiment that I love telling people. So at the moment, in, in today, the globe has a 2% per annum birth rate and a 1% death rate. So, and that's a really easy thought experiment. So imagine you know 100 people. That means every year, on average, you see two babies being born and you go to one funeral. And it's like, you know, that's, that's life. You know, we're used to it. With that very, very modest 1% growth rate, the population is on track to double in 70 years. And imagining that is just it, it, terrifying, right? right? Okay, so let's, let's turn around the equation. Let's say now in our group of 100 friends, there is one baby born and two people die. So, you know, you go to a few more funerals, but it's not, you know, dead bodies lying all over the street. You now have a 1% decrease rate per annum. And that means within 70 years, the total population will halve. And a, a planet with three and a half billion people on it feels a lot more manageable than one with eight billion people on it. And we don't have to have, you know, an apocalypse to get there. Yeah, that's true. And 70 years is not an unimaginable amount of time, even yeah, for people yeah. who are not particularly young. And Dmitry Olov actually talks about the experience of people living through the collapse of the USSR. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of difficulties and struggles. And the population did decrease quite dramatically. But for the average person living year to year, they didn't really notice that things had changed that much in terms of births and deaths. Mm. There was probably more changes at the cultural level and, and economic. Yeah, it's yeah, it's usually the political and economic system that cracks up first. Right. And if things get really bad, then the cultural system gets forced to change. Yes, but, that's um, one of those later stages of collapse, like we mentioned. And the beautiful thing about having what is effectively uh, a synthetic economy, like this financial layer on top, is that you can change it almost arbitrarily. So, for instance, for instance, a lot of people worry about the debt and hyperinflation, all that kind of stuff. But if you look at past examples of hyperinflation, it's when one isolated, weakly coupled currency debased itself and the stronger currencies took advantage of that situation. We're all inflating at the same rate. So there is no, there's no gradient, there's no financial gradient between different places that makes, runny, uh, makes money go rushing from one side of the planet to the other and causing all sorts of chaos. We're, we're kind of um, like the Tom Lehrer song, we're all going together when we go. Uh -huh. Oh, that's a really interesting way to look at it. So even though it is localized and where it's being felt, it is mm. spread out globally in the longer mm. term. Mm. So that's an upside to having a, a, a still functioning global economy. It, it kind of smooths things out to some degree. Uh-huh. And, and okay, so yeah. in the perspective of writing this, oh, yes, what, like how are you telling the story from? Is it from a first-person perspective of someone going through it or is it from a narrative like this is what is happening during this time. Yeah, it's predominantly a first-person perspective mm -hmm. because I've got a background in technical writing. So I have to make a real effort to make the characters and the relationships really interesting and not just make it about world building and science. So mm -hmm. I think I've done that well. I almost worry that I've made it a little bit too dramatic, but you know, pe people love drama. You've just got to, you've got to make it impactful but still convincing so that's the challenge of writing and i'm loving it I'm, re I'm really enjoying the process i think that's you know the most important part right otherwise it never gets finished mm. and I, so look i'm really looking forward to being one of the uh the proof readers if you'll send me absolutely 
an early copy because this is just something that fascinates me is all the different possibilities of what a uh, future that is not dependent on so many of the things that pr propel our society and our economy at the moment. And I'm wondering, so what are the, the basis, what is the foundation of the society that you're outlining in, in this narrative? Um, oh, I don't know if I want to give away too much. Fair enough. Um, but the, the basic idea is very similar to what I'm doing right now with selective breeding. It's um, harnessing the power of biology to adapt when you give it the right circumstances to show what it's capable of doing. Um, and humans can act as a, uh, an incubator, basically, that allows life to go in, sorts of, in all sorts of interesting directions. Um, it's also based on the idea that um, horizontal gene transfer isn't just something that happens in high-tech labs. It happens in nature all the time. Um, weird hybridization happens all the time. Um, we're only just starting to catch up on understanding the extent of it and how important it is for evolution of life on Earth. And humans could be the catalyst. Um, as, as an analogy, so plants before flowering plants and pollinating insects, you had you know, a, a few species of conifers and ferns and spores blowing all over the place. Once they made that transition to using insects to selectively move their pollen around, there was this enormous explosion in diversity. Um, it's night and day in terms of how complex ecosystems are before and after flowering plants came up with a new way of evolving. And I suspect that humans may serve that role in the future. We're going to be basically like the bees running around between every organism we can get our hands on and taking the equivalent of pollen along with us. It's just such a fascinating idea of how our culture can redevelop itself into an asset for the ecologies that we occupy and serve as these connecting links that move genetics into places that they couldn't individually, or you know, much like we've been doing with the concept of invasive species, crossing continents often as mm -hmm. stowaways on ships, or I mean, there's so many different ways that we have both expanded the, the spread of genetics in a fast time and also removed some of it from the very same efforts. And if and, we can get a grasp on that. Yeah, that, that's actually part of the process of evolution. So um, I wrote an article recently on Planet of the Dodos, which actually, like the dodo is the poster child for the tragic, you know, unnecessary, horrible extinction of a species. Right. But when you think of it in terms of ecosystem function, the dodo was a dead end. Like at some point, that island that it was on in the middle of the ocean was going to have some contact with something that was going to massively disrupt that ecosystem. And whether it was humans or continental drift or sea level rise or just sheer chance of something washing across the ocean, it was basically the clock was ticking. And dodos are interesting. I, I wish they were still in zoos somewhere, but does it really make a difference? Um, look at it as well, like with the dinosaurs, they were all wiped out except for the birds. They had that amazing ability to travel the planet with using basically no energy. So they could survive that bottleneck. And um, I actually, I've, I've written another article, um, The Diminishing Returns of Collapse, about how ecosystems and civilizations are getting better at collapsing every time they practice. Every time they've gone through it, they've come back faster and stronger. Oh, that's a really cool way of looking at it. So mm. even collapse is something that you as a, as a species can begin to master if it yes. happens enough and you're aware or somewhat conscious of the process that you're approving upon. Absolutely, absolutely. And collapse is a process that does winnow out the things that can cope with collapse. It's, um, it's a circular, simple little idea. Right, well, that is really important to remember when we're dreading the possibility of collapse is 
remembering that it is a natural part of the cycles of every single thing that grows, especially when it goes into any kind of uh, exponential either increase or decrease, right? Mm, mm. The, 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 the flip side, the balancing effect is always going to, to win out over time, even mm. if extinction is a part of that balancing out. Yes, 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 yes. Mm. That is kind of reassuring, even though <laughs> on a day-to-day level, maybe that doesn't come for you. But <laughs> I think uh, if, well, you're, I... if you're able to imagine these longer <laughs> spans of time, it really does put things into perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we've got, I don't know, 200 million years left on Earth with it still being a fairly nice habitable planet. Like, it's an amazing planet. Let's have fun. Like, at some point, the sun's going to blow up. We're going to get incinerated. Maybe something has escaped from Earth in that time. Like that's kind of the one of the underlying principles of sci-fi: imagining life getting away from Earth. Um, I, I do have some inklings of follow-up books that explore that idea, um, but I'm focusing on the first one first. And um, yeah, if any readers uh, love that idea and they have some experience in uh, uh, functioning as a, a beta reader and would be interested in helping me out with that, um, drop me an email through my website zeroinputagriculture.com and I'll put you on my mailing list. Ooh, exciting. So there's one more thing that I want to explore with you, and this is based on my own very reductionist vision of how biology continues to evolve. And seeing as you understand these things much better than I do, I kind of wanted to run it by you, okay? And since we're going into this what concept, I don't understand. Yes. <laughs> well, you're much better trained in this than me, and I'd love your input. So especially because we're ruminating on the possibility of parallel coevolution of different pockets of human of humanity post technological collapse mm. i have kind of seen this uh, pattern in evolution moving towards increasing i don't want to say control but mastery of their environment of of any organism right starting from yes. single cellular yeah. organisms as they start to develop abilities to increase the, the conducivity of their environments to make it easier for them to reproduce and to develop, they mm. also develop new abilities to control that environment and make it more conducive for the propagation of life. And yes. so single-celled <laughs> organisms go into multi-cell organisms, and now we have these very complex organisms that are able to... Sym- symbioses across entire ecosystems and across the whole planet. Exactly. And so yes. if you follow this on to its eventual conclusion, well, I don't know exactly where it would stop, but it would seem to me that if multi-cell complex organisms are now cooperating in order to form ecosystems that eventually begin to cooperate with one another and you know, there's various evidence of this cooperation among ecosystems. Mm-hmm. Is That's it dependent? Often. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, there we go. And if, if we get to being able to coordinate this at a planetary level, what mm-hmm. is the expression once you get past that? Can you start to create conducive environments at a solar system level that prevents things like immediate collapse from an asteroid striking a, a planet and ensuring mm. that life continues to grow in complexity and diversity and resilience as it moves out into more and more complex systems. You see where mm. I'm going with this? Absolutely. And yeah, there's some of the themes that the later books I, I think I want to explore. Um, I'd maybe bring up a real world example. So um, oh, I want to go back to one other point. Um, one article I'm really proud of, um, that idea of organisms changing their environment for yeah. the better, 
it's not always that simple and green plants are the best example of this. So I wrote an article that I really love called the three times that plants nearly destroyed the planet. Mm -hmm. And if you go back in geological history, they, yeah, they, they really got out of control a few times and things got really dicey for a while. So it's interesting to look at it from that perspective that they were effectively one of the worst invasive species that the planet's ever seen from the perspective of the organisms that were living alongside them when they first appeared. Well, and that's but, parallel to what is yeah. kind of happening with our species at the moment, right? We are so yes. successful yeah. at dominating our environments that we've forgotten to see the broader picture of there's resilience and diversity and that perhaps we can live within the resources and the carrying capacity of, let's say, watersheds or ecosystems mm-hmm. as a whole. And that if we are the only living system within that area and have depleted all the resources that we can sustain ourselves with, okay, mm. do you win or do you lose with that? <laughs> On the other side, those disasters laid the foundations for transformations in life that were completely unimaginable before. So like multicellularity didn't come along until the atmosphere had been filled with toxic oxygen that mm-hmm. like killed everything, caused the whole planet to freeze shut, uh, freeze down. How it managed to get itself going again, we don't know. Which we often and- forget is a very corrosive gas. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing that we breathe this stuff. Like, <laughs> often it's a scientific trope, uh, science fiction trope that aliens turn up and they're like, "Ooh, you breathe that stuff, you're like, we're like the xenomorphs, like yeah. the acid blood that eats through the metal. It's like, they get yeah, away yeah, from yeah. us. You guys are weird. <laughs> um, but we needed that to make the energetic intensity of multicellular organisms possible. So without that huge disaster, we'd still just be like, bacteria floating around in the ooze Mm -hmm. so i i like to imagine that on the other side of the the human impact on the planet there's going to be something really weird that's uh, even i devoting all this time to it probably can't actually imagine where it's going to go and maybe it's not up to us to imagine it but to continue to explore the possibilities and i really think Mm -hmm. that's where the edge of development is and something that you've illustrated really well with your plant breeding Uh, trials and the general experiment that is your property and the documentation of it, which is the blog. And I just love that these these conversations are increasingly available and that you can participate in them and learn from other people's processes. One of the main things that I get from from reading your material. Yes. And um, the some of my greatest influence, um, James Kunstler and John Michael Greer, Mm -hmm. um, they write Uh, factual blogs regularly but they also write works of fiction and I think the power of imagination um, is one of our magic things that humans can do it's our it's our oxygen that we're pumping into the planet that's going to make things go in sorts of all all sorts of wild and and wacky ways yeah yeah man this is an endless rabbit hole that we can continue to follow down (laughs) but we've gone on for a little while here Shane can you remind the listeners where they can find the resources and possibly even apply to get a uh, proof of the book to read early on. Yes. So um, my website is uh, zeroinputagriculture.com. That's one word. Um, that'll link through to my uh, other very, very basic website. Um, I'll make sure that there's a index post up on the front page so people can navigate easily to the many articles that I've written in the past, find something that's interesting. Some people love the philosophy. Some people just want to know how to grow a tomato. So <laughs> a bit of both is there. Um, and tools and techniques. Um, I do book reviews on relevant um, topics. Um, and yeah, a bit of philosophizing that uh, has some of the themes that I'm exploring in the novel as well. And there'll be a contact uh, there that you can email me if you are interested in buying seeds or you would like to be put on a mailing list to be a beta reader for me as my novel comes together. 
Brilliant. And I'll be sure to put links to many of the references that we made, including the five stages of collapse by Dmitry Orlov. And oh, I know wonderful. James Howard Kunstler also has his own po his own podcast now, the Kunstler podcast, I believe. I listen to it often when I'm waiting. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> he's got a really epic TED talk about uh, the suburbs. Many, oh, many yes. Already, yeah, that was when I first learned about him. See, that, that's my vision of dystopia is we somehow keep the suburbs going and cover the whole planet with that <laughs> and the whole universe with that. That's pretty much what Star Trek is. It's suburbia in space. That's true. I hadn't thought about it that way. <laughs> <laughs> it's gentrifying the outer limits of the known universe. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> nice. Okay, well, there's undoubtedly going to be a follow-up to this conversation as well, so let's <laughs> keep in touch. Uh, it's always a pleasure talking to you, Shane, and I look forward to catching up in the future. Thank you very much for inviting me back. It's been wonderful. There you have it. Now, I want to thank Shane once again for his fascinating work and remarkable way of writing about it. I've included links to his blog on the show notes of this episode, and don't forget to check out the resource packet that goes along with this episode. The packets are made to help get the most important bits of information together in a simple-to-review format, so you don't need to go back and re-listen to the whole episode. You can find the resource packet for this and many previous episodes on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash regenskills or through the link on the homepage at regenerativeskills.com. There you can also find the link to our Discord server where we'll be discussing some exciting questions about these topics like, how many of the plants and animals you're raising could you continue to sustain long into the future if you were cut off from their feed and fertility sources? And what food, fiber, and fuel sources grow and thrive with little or no input in your bioregion? You can join this discussion by joining the Discord server for free through the links on our homepage at regenerativeskills.com. Now thanks once again to Hug Records for the original music by IU. If you'd like to have your own original music featured on the show or just want to reach out, you can get in touch directly through info at regenerativeskills.com. Now that's our show for this week. Until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way. <laughs>